So this is the Rheumatology Podcast. Um, it's the CSF author interview. Today, we're very, very fortunate to have Professor Paul Emery with us. Uh, hello, and welcome back to the CSF Rheumatology Author Interview pod Podcast, Paul. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today, we're joined by Paul, who is now the... Um, Arthritis Research UK Professor of Rheumatology and Director of the Leeds Musculoskeletal Biomedical Research Centre at Leeds Teaching Hospital Trust in the UK. And we're very fortunate to have Paul give us a few minutes. Paul OBE, former ULA president, former, um, uh, he trained in uh, Walter and Eliza Hall Institute after uh, Cambridge and Guy's and Brompton's. And we, all the success Paul had, we take uh, complete uh, control over because if it wasn't for the Walter Eliza Hall, who knows where Paul would have ended up. So Paul, so welcome, uh, join us today. We're talking about a paper recently published by Paul in Arthritis Research and Therapy. And it's looking in particular at baricitinib and its effect on structural joint damage progression in patients with rheumatoid. But just before we get to that, Paul, would you mind filling us in on what's happening in the UK as far as um, uh, your research at the moment? What are your interests? What are you working on at the moment? Uh, well, we're, we're still looking at optimizing therapy for um, rheumatoid patients, but our main research interest now is prevention. And that's prevention of inflammatory arthritis. And we have a very large cohort of patients who are at risk. We have a system with primary care throughout the UK, which refers patients to us. And we have various risk models now, so we can very accurately predict timing of the development of clinical arthritis. And we're intervening with various medications and interventions, including uh, periodontal work uh, with active drugs. And now we're extending that to lupus, Sjogren's, scleroderma, and uh, the whole idea is to prevent patients who have an autoimmune diathesis progressing to the phenotype of disease. So this is like an active positive clinic with no clinical symptoms type yes. patient? Yeah, we have- And first degree relatives? We, indeed, we have what we call FDRs uh, who have the genetic risk. Uh, we type them for uh, HLA status. Uh, we also have APR positive patients. Some of them have symptoms and in fact, it's quite clear that by the time you have uh, symptoms, you're on a, a trajectory that's going to lead you. And the symptoms are often very uh, diffuse. They're probably related to the interferon levels that patients experience. Um, and uh, they have fatigue. Uh, they don't actually have joint pain till quite near the end. And uh, that's probably because the first musculoskeletal site is, are the tendons and the peri. Uh, the interossei have inflammation around them as well. So they get stiffness of the hands before they get arthritis. So because of that, you have these patients I've been... telling you they're ill. Um, and I think that's a real opportunity to prevent joint damage. You mentioned interferonopathies and interferon signatures. Disappointed the interferon therapies didn't work in RA. Was it just too early and they weren't used well? Um, I think it's probably because interferon is a necessary but not sufficient um, uh, thing to have before you, you progress. 
and the interferon levels are very high. They probably, they're high right at the time, the ones that progress, they're high from the first moment we see them. So I think you probably have to use uh, the anti-interferons very early. But of course, uh, what we're going to be talking about today inhibits interferon, and we'll be looking at that. So uh, baricitinib is nice. a powerful interferon blocker. And, and just, just because it's so topical, how has COVID affected your work and your patients' interactions and getting and treating your patients? Has it been a big imposition? It's been huge. Um, Britain's had the, the worst uh, COVID experience, I think, of any nation, uh, for a variety of reasons, the density of population and so on. But our ITUs have been overloaded for nearly a year now. And uh, finally, with vaccination, they've come right down in the last few weeks. So our guys are coming back from COVID duty. And we, we have, for the last nine months, been seeing face-to-face -face patients but there's no doubt we're seeing what we call COVID casualties, the people who've developed autoimmune disease and have got a severity that we're just not used to seeing because they haven't been seen, they've not been to their GP. So it's been, there's a lot of catch up and a lot of uh, disability that's occurred because of COVID, yeah. And are you seeing a lot of um, post-COVID rheumatic syndromes? Uh, people are collecting these. It's hard to say whether it's worse in our rheumatoids. Perhaps the interferon levels actually protect them slightly. Our deaths are underrepresented compared to the rest of the UK. Um, that may be because they shield their, their professional patients, a lot of ours, and they know they take advice and follow it. But we haven't seen a lot of problems. We, we've had some very tragic cases of patients being admitted and then their husbands being admitted and the patients with rheumatoid surviving and those their husbands not which is mm. very sad but of course mm. some of the drugs we, we're, we're using are now licensed for use in the treatment of severe covid so so we, we're going to talk about baricitinib yep and uh we're going to talk about the jack so could you just tell us a little bit about the market in the uk with all these biosimilars have the jacks had penetration and where does Topher and Barry, Topher after the oral surveillance and Barry and Upa, where do they all sit in the market in, in rheumatology in the UK? Well, it's been a big change. Um, Topher's never had the impact in Europe that it had in the States because it arrived late. It arrived at the same time as baricitinib. It arrived with only the, the lower dose available to us, the 5BD. Um, Paracetamib arrived with both doses, the two and the four, which uh, the four isn't available in the States. And that had one of the fastest penetrations into the market of any new drug. It was very fast indeed in certain countries. Um, Uparacetamib uh, is licensed. Uh, they're still negotiating prices, so it's a little bit difficult to prescribe at the moment. But actually, within the next few weeks, both uh, Uparacetamib and Filgotinib will be available. Um, UPA at 15 milligrams and Filgotinib at both doses. And as you know, in the States, they haven't pursued it because the higher dose wasn't approved. So we have the full range of drugs available. Um, the, the big use has been with baricitinib, um, uh, but there are these new uh, uh, other drugs, Filgotinib and Upadacitinib, which will certainly take some of the market. And of course, the, uh, there's the psoriatic side of it, which, um, is you know more unique to um uparacitinib so we we just heard today in a press release 
given that uh, the FDA was so concerned about spermatogenesis for Filgotinib and the Mantis study, preliminary data shows the placebo had a higher reduction in sperm count than the Filgo did and Gilead and our TGA are not going forward. So we're not going to get Filgo in Australia, just like the US. And it's the, you'd think it's the safest of the jacks, but anyway, that's the way the cookie crumbles. So let's talk about your uh, paper. Tell us a little bit about the background to this particular analysis and, and what were the methods and what you tried to achieve with this analysis. Well, this was to provide a, a comprehensive overview uh, of the complete data on the structural uh, benefit of baricitinib in patients with RA. And it includes everything from an MRI, a quite unique MRI study in a phase two study, which actually showed cartilage benefit at one stage, as well as the usual synovitis, erosion and osteitis benefit. Uh, but we then looked at the very complete data set of uh, structural inhibition uh, across the whole spectrum of rheumatoid from uh, metatrexate naive patients in begin to uh, DMARD uh, um, incomplete responders in uh, build and metatrexate incomplete responders in beam. So, uh, and we did a, a, a summary of the mouse work and the, well, it was a rat adjuvant work and uh, the, the biomarkers, which are very consistent with the effect. And of course, the, the, the whole uh, premise of a DMARD is that it does pre prevent structural inhibition. So we felt it was important with a new agent to put in one place all the data. Tell us a little bit about some of the MRI. I know you're, you've, you've had a keen interest in imaging for so long. Uh, the OMARAC, the RAMRIS, the CARLOS, uh, some of these are new to, to the rheumatology audience for the CARLOS, for example. Tell us a bit about these uh, initiatives in, in uh, uh, getting MRI to be accepted as a way, a more sensitive way of following damage and leaving plain X-ray behind from last century. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the trouble with, with x-ray, as you well know, Peter, is that it's a two-dimensional representation. And by the time you've got something big enough to be seen on a, a radiographic change, and in particular, to get a change in radiographic status, you have to have quite severe bony damage. So the, the whole idea these days is to prevent bony damage. Uh, so we use much more sensitive measures. And in fact, largely now, we although... Uh, this paper focuses on both synovitis erosions and joint space narrowing. The, uh, the real issue is, is to make sure patients have zero inflammation and no synovitis. And if you achieve that, then you, you're not going to get erosions. And I'll say a little bit more about that. But the, the scores you mentioned are as, exactly as you, you put. They're, the, they're standardized scoring systems that allow MRI to be done in a standardized way in different centers because Although it's a very sensitive mechanism, there has been complaints about whether it's standardized and reproducible. Uh, but I think that is now accepted. Sadly, it's accepted when we've probably moved on a little bit, but we'd use MRI still for the soft tissue changes, which are, are equally important. Um, there was, uh, those with long memories will remember, there was a huge debate about whether there were two separate mechanisms inflammation and damage. And it seemed that you could switch off inflammation with standard DMARDs, but people still progressed. 
And the idea was there were different, almost um, uh, uh, cancer-like uh, things in our fibroblasts that may have had changes with P53 and so on, which made these uh, fibroblasts uh, resistant to treatment and meant that you would damage irrespective of turning off inflammation. But it, with the ability of MRI and to lesser extent ultrasound, we were able to show years ago now that you could, if you had no sign of itis in your joints, you didn't erode. And that, that changed things because it meant that you could target sign of itis and things didn't deteriorate. And, uh, do, you think, do you think NICE will ever ex accept MRI and not insist on X-ray? Do you think FDA will ever let plain X-ray go and, uh, and use MRI? Um, I don't, I don't, they, they should do. I, I, uh, NICE doesn't care about erosions. NICE cares about uh, quality of life, but uh, the MHRA, um, I think that they're, they're, they're relaxing because there's so many agents now that are effective at, at treating this that I don't think, uh, and MRI has been validated so many times. It's, um, uh, <laughs> the bigger question is how many new true DMARDs will we get? in a market that's relatively crowded, will, will people or the pharma companies spend the huge amounts of money that are required to get a, a drug to market when they're interrupted at the last stage, like you just said, by data that don't support <laughs> the FDA's <laughs> decision. So, um, you know, the vagaries of, you know, the, the fact that baricitinib wasn't licensed at four milligrams, the fact tocilizumab wasn't licensed at eight milligrams per kilogram, and now Phil gotten it at 200 milligrams, uh, you know, and especially when oftentimes they only license it post TNF when you actually need the high dose, when the lower, so, one occasion the low dose doesn't work as well. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about the two milligrams versus the four milligram. Tell us a little bit about the results of the study and the two doses. There seems to be a dose response as far as damage is concerned. Yeah, the, the two milligrams works pretty well uh, for most things. There's clear separation for uh, x-ray changes with actually the one exception to that is in build and a little bit in beam, which are the two post-metotrexate uh, one. Uh, well, it's, it's in uh, build because that's the one against two milligrams. And what's in that, the joint space narrowing was equally good in the two doses but erosions were, slight, were slightly better. And in BEGIN, which was the one against methotrexate, there was a clear benefit from the four milligrams in terms of structural benefit. But you probably don't need four milligrams all the time. It probably, if you, if you gave it at the time when it was eroding uh, at its fastest, you could get away with two. But we use four most of the time. We find that if you have, for example, liver function test abnormalities, and we've done a paper on temporary interruptions showing that you can get away with temporary interruptions and no loss of efficacy, and you can restart quite quickly. And you also have the advantage of using the two in more elderly patients, in those who you think may be more prone to side effects. So we find the two doses quite helpful. And uh, I don't think the x-ray data impinges too much on what we, or how we handle the drug, actually. And the other observation, is like everything else, the combo with methotrexate seems to be slightly better than the mono, even though we use a lot of barriers mono. Yeah, correct. Uh, again, it's 
it's mainly the benefit is seen mostly in the x-ray data so uh, you you can again use methotrexate when you think the patients are at their worst and then when they're more stable later there's no data to support this but i would strongly suggest that if you get patients well sure. then stop the methotrexate you're not going to erode yes and tell us a little bit about safety we're all very paranoid about vte and in the asia pacific region they are very paranoid about zoster because shindrix we can't get here yet can you get shindrix in the uk all right only by a, a lot of uh, sort of paperwork i don't know why right. we can't get it it doesn't, doesn't make sense but it's you know and it's not it, it, it is it costs a bit but it's not that expensive compared to a, a, a zoster episode um, oh. No, VTE is still uh, a, a major issue. The TOFA has got a black box warning and we're advised not to give TOFA to patients over 65, overweight and steroids, diabetics and so on. And I think uh, it certainly biases us. So if a patient has a high DVT risk, particularly someone who's had a DVT or a thromboembolic event previously, we wouldn't actually go to a, a um, jack inhibitor first line, first line of, of uh, advanced therapy. Well, I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you if you feel this is a jack class effect or a jack two effect. Um, the it, it's difficult to say. I think at the moment, Phil Gottenib, as you know, had pretty clean data all the way through its development, but it has seen. Uh, small numbers of DVTs, as you, you would rightly expect. Otherwise, it would have to be a therapy for DVT because rheumatoids have a, 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 an increased risk. It does, <laughs> it does seem to be uh, a little less prevalent in the uh, Japan selective. But, uh, and then you get to the question of whether UPA is truly Japan selective or 1-2. Um, and uh, it you know the jury's out the the hemoglobin data does suggest that perhaps philgo is the most uh, jack one selective thing yeah particularly if you push the upa does you start to get an anemia i agree so tell us the results of your study and any sort of clinical take-home message to the practicing clinician well as i said this is the probably the most comprehensive review of uh structural damage by a DMARD, and it shows convincingly that it, it actually works extremely well at preventing uh, erosions at the time. And th these were largely patients picked to have rapid erosive rates because they wanted to get data that showed it. So in begin, there's a, a quite striking reduction in X-ray data compared to methotrexate. Um, in build, uh, uh, you get dose response uh, in patients with the two and then the four. And as I said, the joint space narrowing, which many people consider to be the most important thing to conserve, because that's representing cartilage, which correlates with late functional deterioration. So that the fact that even the two uh, was as good as the four and strikingly different to the placebo. Uh, and then the, the perhaps the most revealing one, which is the one against adalimumab. Um, and now uh, in beam, at uh, the combination was was you that the adalimumab was compared with uh, um, four milligrams of baricitinib and the radiographic changes were largely the 
the same in the two groups who really couldn't distinguish them. There wasn't, there wasn't power to show a difference for x-ray damage. What was shown was that the, the baricitin was clinically better, but uh, TNF, which has uh, anti-TNFs, which are probably our best uh, gold standard for uh, radiographic change because the effect on rapid ligand and osteoclast, uh, to fact, the fact that JAK inhibitors were equivalent, I think is um, very impressive. So in, in BEAM, you had improved um, clinical responses and equal uh, radiographic changes. So I love the idea you can tell a patient, this book said that I'm about to start you on a therapy, we'll have half of you in remission in a year, and 80 odd percent of you will have no evidence of x-ray damage. So yeah, probably you know, they, that actually in clinical practice, because as I said, these are selected patients to be bad. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, so you you can, you know, that's that the thing I always say that changed everything for rheumatology was the uh, the data from a tract where we weren't even expecting to see any radiographic damage. Famously, a, a very uh, eminent American said that um, anti-TNF was a very good antidepressant, uh, uh, but no good on structure. So when, when it showed that you <laughs> could hardly show any changes, we, we, we managed, those were the days we actually only had x-rays in about half the patients, but it showed yeah. such a dramatic- Do you think, Paul? Sorry, Peter. Do you think, Paul, sorry. Do you think going forward, look, eventually TOEFL will be off patent, these drugs will be off patent. Do you think there'll come a day where we might start with a jack instead of methotrexate if there's no cost issue. Well, that's a very interesting. Uh, um, we we've taken on biosimilars in a big way for the biologics. We about eighty five percent now are biosimilars, so there's no problem switching to an equivalent drug. I don't think we will find we will be switching to TOFA when it's uh, generic because I don't think TOFA in the Europe psychologically is seen as equivalently safe. But if you've got TOFA generic and you had a really bad patient and you could use it because cost-wise it would be cheaper than injectable methotrexate, for example, um, I don't see why people would not, yeah. in those not at risk of any of the side effects, wouldn't use it. No, I think, I think the generics may actually change the first line of therapy more than the second line of therapy initially because it's only TOEFL that's coming off patent in England. Sure. We've done some clinics in uh, Cambodia where they, where they can't afford anything. And to have a, a, a cheap generic jack and cheap methotrexate and cheap cilazopyrin and cheap prednisone, I think it'll change the world in the, in the third world anyway. So we'll have to wait and see. So any other comments, any take home message for the uh, clinician from your analysis, particularly the imaging analysis of, of this Jack? Well, I think once again, it, it shows that uh, these drugs are true DMARDs, that radiographic damage with the drugs we use nowadays is hopefully something you can almost forget about, that you, you want to concentrate on the clinical patient and their well-being, and you, you fortunately don't have to worry too much about what's going to happen, what's happening in their joints. And if they preserve joint space narrowing, used earlier, these patients, these drugs, along with all the the other you know, very effective radiographic inhibitors that we have, will make a long-term difference to joint replacements and so on that, that we've seen over the years. And I, 
I hope it will extend the number of patients who have access to the, these drugs. So I think I think it's been a revolution and you've led that wave and we appreciate your time, Paul. I, I got recently a letter from a retiring plastic surgeon who thanked us for the patients we'd sent him over the years and said, you must be doing something right because we're no longer operating on rheumatoid hands. So that for, for a surgeon to appreciate a difference, that's a, that's a revolution in itself. So we thank you for your time, Paul. We know how busy you are. Um, it's been the CSF Auth Interview podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and the others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends wherever you get your podcast from. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. And thanks so much, Paul. We appreciate your time and trouble. Cheers. Cheers, Peter. All the best. All the best. Thanks, guys. We've got all of that. Oh, they've already left. Did you okay, get that? Okay, I did, but... Oh. <laughs>